Louis Zamperini was one of my heroes when I was a kid. I read a short biography about him when I was 12 or 13 years old. And the next year I started running track and I was thinking of, of him and the way that he conquered some of the enemies in his mind and some of his fears. Uh, Zamperini was an interesting character. Uh, the unbroken book traces the story of his life. He started as, as a teenager getting arrested several times and they weren't sure what to do with him, whether they should throw him in reform school. His brother started him running, and as he won races, he realizes he didn't have to run away from the police. He could run away from other people who were meeting him at the starting line, and he'd be first to the finish. He had such great success that he set the national high school record for the mile that stood for 19 years. And even as a high schooler, people are already talking about how he was the, the next great American hope. They thought he would be the first American to break the four-minute mile and that he'd run in the Olympics. Well, he did run in the Olympics as a 19-year-old. They threw him into the 5,000 meters. He'd only run that race about three times in his life. And he came in, it was either seventh or eighth in the 1936 Olympics in, in Germany. But then the war broke out and he felt cheated. There were no Olympics in 1940. And, and like just about every other young man his age, he, he volunteered and he got involved in, in the war. And as his life went through a number of stages, his plane was shot down over Japanese waters. He survived 40 day, 47 days in a raft, only to be captured by the Japanese. Nearly starved to death in a POW camp and spent two and a half years there where he was beaten brutally. Millions of people turned out to see Angelina Jolie's 2014 motion picture by the same name, Unbroken. And that film focused mostly on the brutal treatment that Zamperini endured during those POW camp years, finally being released in August 1945. As horrific as that was, arguably, Zamperini's greatest battle was still ahead of him when he returned home after the war. Plagued by daily nightmares from nearly drowning, from fighting off sharks while he was surviving in that life raft, and then starving in the POW camp where his weight dropped to 65 pounds, if you can imagine that, and then being beaten daily by one particular guard who made it his point to, to ruin uh, Zamperini's life. He began to self-medicate in the years after the war by drinking heavily. At first, he was a star when he came back because his story was so uh, amazing. People had given him up for, for dead. He'd, he'd been... Uh, announced to his family that, that he died in the war, and then to come back and having such an amazing story. But the nightmares caused him to drink more and more. Unable to secure meaningful work, on the verge of losing his marriage, these were the years that actually shook his life most greatly. It was now 1949, and neither Louis nor his wife saw any hope. After one more alcohol-induced night of rage, his wife, Cynthia, announced that she was filing for divorce. And then something happened. A neighbor stepped in with an invitation to invite her to a series of meetings that had begun in their city, Los Angeles. She accepted this invitation and went to hear a young preacher named Billy Graham that the world had barely discovered at that point as he launched a tent revival that lasted for weeks and weeks in Los Angeles. The next night, she told Louis that something had changed for her that night as she went to the, the Graham Crusade and that she wouldn't be going through 
on her plans to divorce him if he would do one thing, if he would come with her that night to hear Dr. Graham at the crusade. On the first night, after agreeing to go, when Graham began to call for people to respond, Louis quickly left. But he went back the next night. When Graham gave his closing invitation, Louis again began to get out of his seat and to walk out of that large tent arena. But as he did, Billy Graham said something like this, there's somebody out there who is drowning tonight, and you need a lifeline. And as he heard those words, Louis remembered the days that he'd spent in that life draft floating on the sea, not sure if he would live. And he remembered calling out to God. And he remembered promising God, if you get me out of this, if you allow me to live, I will serve you for the rest of my life. And those words came flooding back into his mind, and he turned around, and he went to the front of that arena, and he surrendered his life to Christ. Part of the uh, amazing results of that were, were that Louis went home and for the first time that night, for the first time since the end of the war, he didn't have nightmares and he slept through the night. And the nightmares never came back. He gave up drinking cold turkey. And soon he joined the, the Graham team and he toured around the country telling his story of how God had radically changed his life and had given him hope. The story wasn't over from there, eventually, his pathway took him back to Japan and back to the very same POW camp where he had spent most of that time sharing the gospel with some of the same guards who had held him captive, and he forgave them. Here's my question. Can that same kind of unshakable hope help people like you and me today in the world we live in? Over the past two weeks, I've quoted Menlo Church Pastor John Ortberg, who made this comment, people who cultivate the habit of hope live better lives than those who cultivate the habit of despair. That's not a universal truth that, that applies to every single person in the world, but it is generally true that people who cultivate this habit of hope tend to live more productive, better lives than those who cultivate the habit of despair. And we're going to put this concept to another test this morning. As we continue our series on the School of Hope, we're going to look at four keys to unshakable hope that are found in Psalm 62. Here's the, the main idea that I want to get across this morning. Unshakable hope comes from trusting the rock that never moves. It's a very simple concept. But unshakable hope comes from trusting the rock that never moves. The Bible in the Old Testament refers to God, the Creator, at times as a rock. And in the New Testament, it refers to Jesus several times as the, the rock of God, the rock of our salvation. So I'd like to walk you through four keys to unshakable hope that all rise from this Psalm 62, a Psalm of David. Here's the first one. We find rest at the rock. So as you're considering whether you will come to the rock and whether you too would surrender like Louis Zamperini did, we find rest at the rock. The psalm begins with these two verses. Truly my soul finds rest in God. My salvation comes from him. Truly he is my rock and my salvation. He is my fortress. I will never be shaken. King David wrote this psalm at one of the lowest points of his life. What was going on was that his son Absalom had been planning against his father for four years, plotting against him. 
Absalom had left the royal city of Jerusalem, attempting to set up another throne in Hebron, a city in Israel, which was where David first reigned from in the earliest part of, of his years as the king, while he was building the city of Jerusalem. And Absalom had cultivated hundreds of leading men from the 12 tribes of Israel, enticing them to follow him. And he had convinced one of David's top royal advisors also to join him, which made David even sadder. David wrote this particular psalm as he was about to flee the city, literally running for his life. These first two verses of Psalm 62 form the refrain that is part of this psalm or song of David. You know, who would think of writing a song as you're running for your life, trying to get out of the city? But, but that's what David did, Pro probably started it and then finished it later as he's reflecting on this moment. Again, so it starts, truly my soul finds rest in God, my salvation comes from him. Truly he is my rock and my salvation, he is my fortress. And then David says these words, I will never be shaken. In his shame and in his sorrow, David was reminding himself in those moments of lessons he'd already learned. He wasn't feeling happy. He wasn't feeling like worshiping in that moment. His broken soul would only find rest in God, who is the rock, who is our salvation, who is our fortress. And so he's reciting these themes over and over again in his mind that he ultimately writes down in this psalm. David was relationally grieved, personally betrayed, and politically embarrassed, but he tells us he would never be shaken. I don't know about you, but I like that. That's about as low as you can get in terms of all of the human standards by which we measure success or pride or prestige, and yet David is saying, even in that moment, I will not be shaken from the confidence I have in God. This would normally seem like a, great, a time for great anxiety, so what kind of rest was David talking about? He wasn't talking about mere sleep or slumber. The word David used here in Hebrew speaks of the quiet confidence that waits in the Lord. In other words, the quiet confidence that trusts in the Lord's timing to work things out. So David was reminding himself that the sadness of his soul on that particular day would only find true rest by waiting on the Lord as his rock and as his salvation. David was not saying that he felt restful or happy in this situation. You need to understand that. He wasn't. He's in misery. The next few lines reflect what was going on. He asks, how long will you assault me? Would all of you throw me down? Surely they intend to topple me from my lofty place. They delight in lies. With their mouths they bless, and with their hearts they curse. And so he's speaking of the people who want to take him down. He's speaking of his own son, who's quietly been living in his palace, plotting against him all of this time. No, what David was doing was practicing quietness of soul or restfulness of soul on one of the worst days of his life. Where had David learned this? Again, he says in those two verses, truly my soul finds rest in God, my salvation comes from him. David knew of the saving power of God in a number of ways in his life. 
David had been chased out of Israel as a pariah by King Saul in his madness, despite being the most successful of all of the army captains. David was the one who, when all the other soldiers were terrified by this giant named Goliath, he volunteered while still as a teenager to go fight him and was victorious. He was the one who said on that day, the battle belongs to the Lord. It's not about me. Later, David's most trusted allies had urged him to kill King Saul when he had the chance, and twice he restrained himself from doing that. David put his trust in the Lord's promise and the Lord's timing that the Lord would take care of the day when David would finally be lifted to the throne, but he would not force it in his own way. Things got so bad at one point that David pretended to be insane before a foreign king. So David had lived through all of these low points before and he had seen God's powerful hand and knew that God can rescue us from those difficult times. It's as if David was saying to you and me, come to the rock, for he alone can quiet your soul when things get hard. Even on the worst days of your life, come to the rock. Here's the second key. The first is that we find rest at the rock. The second is we find hope at the rock. So the same theme is, is repeated, but with a slight change just a few verses later. Verses 5 and 6 pick up this refrain in the psalm. David there writes, Yes, my soul finds rest in God. My hope comes from him. Truly, he is my rock and my salvation. He is my fortress. I will never be shaken. Here in verses 5 and 6, we hear this same refrain repeated, yet there is one key difference. David takes out the word rest and he replaces it with hope. My hope comes from him. This is like tweaking the chorus of a song in order to make a very subtle point. Comparing the apparent strength of those who want to take him down with God who is his rock, David can now speak of hope right in the midst of this terrible, hoary, horrible, no good day. Why? How can David speak of such hope? because his heart is fixed on the reality that God is our rock and our salvation. He is our rock, and if so, then there is hope. And the more that David focuses on the rock and not on his problems, hope arises. And he realized that in the end, he will not be shaken. This is unshakable hope. This unshakable hope is that resilient hope that we talked about last Sunday that we saw in Job because his heart was fixed on the reality of who God is. Hope was rising. This is an anchored in the rock resilience that we find here in David. Now think of some of the songs, if you've been around here for a long time, think of some of the songs that we tend to sing around here that have lines in them about this element of unshakable hope. Once in a while we'll sing Tommy Walker's There is a Rock, a rock we've built our lives upon. Or there's another song that we've sung more recently by Vertical Worship called the rock, This Rock Won't Move. For those of you who are older and you remember singing the hymns in the church of your youth like I do, we sang then of Rock of Ages, cleft for me, and how we were hiding in that rock. The imagery there is of Elijah on the mountain as God passes by, hiding in the rocky, jagged cliffs of that mountain. Or last week, we sang, on Christ the solid rock I stand, all other ground is 
sinking sand. And we also sang, in Christ alone, my hope is found. He is my light, my strength, my song. This cornerstone, this solid ground, firm through the fiercest drought and storm. On this foundation, we can sense the hope that was filling David's sails. He writes about it again in the next two verses, verses 7 and 8. There he says, my salvation and my honor depend on God He's not just my rock, David writes. He's my mighty rock, my refuge. You can almost feel his confidence growing line by line. And then in verse 8, he starts to preach a little bit. Trust in him at all times, you people. Pour out your hearts to him, for God is our refuge. So God is not just any old rock. He's our rock. He's our mighty rock. He is my refuge and your refuge. What's a refuge? A refuge is a safe place that you run to in order to get out of the storm. Question, is this a bad day or a bad week or a bad season? We all have them. Maybe you've just come off one. On his worst day, David adds for us, Trust in him at all times, you people. Pour out your hearts to him, for God is our refuge. This is the psalm that David wrote on the day when it was discovered that his son had been plotting and that Absalom's armies were on their way to Jerusalem. And David tells his household and his cabinet and all the people who are loyal to him, get out, we've got to flee, we've got to get out of the city. If we don't go now, we're all going to die. And he's imagining his own soldiers beginning to line up to fight against this son whom he loves so greatly. And he's torn with this anguish of soul over the direction that his son is taking in absolute opposition to him and his desire to live. And which one would he choose? So these keys to finding unshakable hope. First we find rest at the rock, then we find hope at the rock. Here's the third key. We find safety at the rock. Let me go back a little bit, verses 5 and 6, and then add verse 7 in there. Verse 5 says, yes, my soul find rest in God. My hope comes from Him. Truly, He is my rock and my salvation. He is my fortress. I will never be shaken. And now He adds, my salvation and my honor depend on God. He is my mighty rock, my refuge. Hope is always something that is tied to something else. Hope has to be anchored in something that gives us a reason for that hope's existence. So the question is, what was David's hope in? Again, he tells us in that refrain in verse 2 and verse 6, He is my fortress, I will not be shaken. He is my fortress. I will not be shaken. And then he adds, he is my mighty rock, my refuge. These terms, fortress and refuge, are words of safety. Why did David need safety? Well, remember, Absalom is trying to kill him. Absalom wants the throne, and treachery was abounding. David finds out that for four years, Absalom had been hanging out each day at the city gates. 
in effect the, the courtroom or the place of local business. And each day, as people would come from the small towns and villages around Israel, they would bring their complaints, hoping that some emissary of the king would hear their complaints and bring them to David the king so that they would get some kind of justice or satisfaction. And so Absalom would gather early in the morning, and he'd listen to all these people and their complaints, and he'd say, only if I could be appointed as an emissary of the king, then I would surely bring your complaints forward, and you would get justice. But David, my father, doesn't have time for you. And he began to cultivate this loyalty town after, in town after town or village after village. And eventually he persuaded some of the, the princes and the, the royalty who were a part of David's entourage that he would do a better day, job than David, that David had been king too long, and it was time to push David off the throne and Absalom would get results for the people. Do you hear this populist kind of appeal? Sounds good, doesn't it? And eventually the point came when he asked his father if he could have permission to move out of the palace and to move into their old residence in Hebron, not telling David that what he was longing to do was to set up a puppet kingdom and reign on the throne that his father had previously reigned on and start a rival government that would become a threat to David. After four years of this, things began to turn and many of the people were with Absalom. In 2 Samuel 15, 13, we read that a messenger came and told David, the hearts of the people are with Absalom and with this news, David and everyone who is with him begins to flee. In verse 23 of the same chapter, we're told, quote, the whole countryside wept aloud as the people passed by and so there's this picture we have of David and his entourage leaving the city of Jerusalem. They're climbing up the Mount of Olives on their way escaping. And all the people who live in and around Jerusalem are weeping as David, this king that they love, is leaving the city in fear for his life. And they're wondering what kind of chaos is going to hit. Not only is this a bad day for David, this is a bad day for everybody who loves David. This is a bad day for everyone around Jerusalem. There is an army coming in the other direction. And as David gets to the top of the Mount of Olives, the messengers say that Absalom's soldiers had arrived on the outskirts of the city. What an amazing picture the book of 2 Samuel gives us about why David wrote this psalm. Add in then one more heartbreak. David learns that Ahithophel, who is one of the king's counselors, in other words, one of the wise people who David consorted with day in and day out and solved problems with, goes over to Absalom. And this adds insult to injury. We see one final picture of King David in 2 Samuel 15, verses 30 to 32. Leaving Jerusalem, they're climbing the Mount of Olives, and think of the Mount of Olives. This is where Jesus gathered with his disciples after the Last Supper, and they, they sang a song, and they had a final prayer that night before Jesus went out to pray in the garden and finally get arrested. This is a place of great significance. So complete this picture. They've gathered in that place of worship and prayer, and we're told that David was climbing up the Mount of Olives in bare feet, and with a covering over his head. And that all the people in his entourage wore coverings over their heads. You know why? 
It was a sign of mourning and a sign of sadness. And they were weeping as they climbed the hill. And when they got to the top of the hill, David looked down and realized that his son's armies were arriving on the outskirts of the city. What do you sing and, and what do you say when you enter a worship place when you're filled with that kind of grief? That's what David was encountering on the top of the Mount of Olives. Normally he came there to pray and people would worship there early in the morning and sing songs of praise to God as they're looking out over the city of Jerusalem. There's an old hymn that we used to sing in the church I grew up in. Jesus is a rock in a weary land. A weary land, a weary land. Oh, Jesus is the rock in a weary land, a shelter in the time of storm. As a little kid, I used to wonder, what is a weary land? I never understood that. I sang the song, but I didn't have the depth of understanding as a child to really understand what we were singing in that song. Some of you know what a weary land is. It's any place you are when you are weary of soul and with all of your strength and all of your energy has been stripped away from you and you're standing only in your own power. There's nothing left that you have. We all get there at some point. And I think of that song, this was a weary land at that moment for David. He's come to a place that people normally associated with worship and a praise to God, and he's got no strength left. He's cried himself out. But what he begins to write about is that God is his refuge, that shelter in the time of storm. Last night as I was reviewing this, this song came back into my, into my head. I haven't sung that song for 40 years, but it just came flooding out. Oh, Jesus is a rock in a weary land, a weary land, a weary land. Oh, Jesus is a rock in a weary land, a shelter in the time of storm. There's so many songs and hymns about God our rock, as Jesus is our rock, ab flood out of Psalm 62, which was written on one of David's absolute worst, most discouraging, most depressing days. Think of that. When you and I attempt to write down our thoughts or attempt to praise God in the midst of our sadness, there is greatness that flows from those moments. Because we are at our most honest level in those times. We are at our most honest level before God, knowing there's nothing left that I have to give you. All I can do is announce that you are my rock and I can focus on you and throw myself into your strength. And that's what David was doing in that moment. In a recent interview, actor Kelsey Grammer, you know Kelsey Grammer, known as Frazier, right? The only guy I know of who's gotten uh, major runs, two 10-year runs out of two different series. Played Frasier in Cheers, and then he played Frasier in Frasier, and evidently they're looking at bringing Frasier back for another series. TV needs some new ideas, I think, right? <laughs> but a memorable character. 
Kelsey Grammer is an interesting case. He, he went through some tremendous losses in his life. When he was 15, his father was murdered, and then his grandfather died right after that. A few years later, his sister was attacked and killed, and, and his two half-brothers then drowned in a scuba diving accident. How do you deal with that kind of loss? Eleven years after his father's death, he found a line in W.H. Auden's poem, Atlantis. And the line that he held on to was just three words long. Staggering onward rejoicing. And it comes from a very secular poem. It's not uh, you know, spiritually inspired and filled with all kinds of great things. But he, he held on to this one line that sometimes that's our job, just to stagger onward, somehow rejoicing in the best parts of life. And he felt that that line gave him the courage to move forward and to move away from the misery and to move forward in life. It's what Christians learn when we sing songs like Jesus is a rock in a weary land or when you sing praises to God even when you're going through one of those most difficult seasons. Why? Unshakable hope comes from trusting the rock that never moves. And that unshakable hope is built in those seasons of great discouragement. You might be tempted to think in the moments when you don't see God at work, when you're pleading with him to change a situation or work in somebody's life or to show up with more profound power or when you're trying to find him for the first time and you're not quite sure how to grab hold, you might think he's not listening. But God is producing something great within you in those times. And he is producing this unshakable hope which only grows during those times and seasons of profound testing. And then there's one more. We find a plan at the rock. We find a plan. So let me go back and go forward a little bit more. Verse 7, David writes, My salvation and my honor depend on God. He is my mighty rock, my refuge. He preaches to us. Trust in him at all times, you people. Pour out your hearts to him, for God is our refuge. And then in verse 9 he adds, Surely the lowborn are but a breath, the highborn are but a lie. If weighed on a balance, they are nothing. Together they are only a breath. What is David's plan? Simply to trust God and not to fear what people can do to him. From lowborn to highborn, it doesn't matter. They're but a breath, he says. They're just people. They can't harm me in ways that take anything away that God can ultimately restore or give me in the end. At the crest of the Mount of Olives, David learned that his counselor Ahithophel had gone over to serve with Absalom, but there was another of the counselors who was there that day, and David utters this prayer on the top of the Mount of Olives. Lord, turn Ahithophel's counsel into foolishness. He sends the second man back to Absalom in order to be a spy for David and said, maybe just your presence there will mess up plans. And Absalom, in his confusion, rejects the wise counsel of Ahithophel, and he takes the other man's counsel and in a very short order, he makes a poor battle decision, and he's out in the front of his, his armies exposed when David's men find him. And it's a grisly end. He dies in the battle, but it all ends in that moment. 
exactly what David prayed for happened. That Absalom's mind had become confused and he took bad advice. And as a result of that bad advice, within days, the battle was over, the revolt was finished. Now we hear words like this from Jesus at the end of the Sermon on the Mount. Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house upon the rock. Here's what we're discovering. We find God's plan at the rock. You may have been making your own plans for your life, and I want to ask, how's that working out? Sometimes when I have my own plans, that's when I get in trouble, and most of the time when you have your own plans and they're not God's plans, that's when you get in trouble. But when we meet God at the rock, he unfolds his plans for us, and they are always better. Charles Stanley has a favorite quote of mine. He says, God has a plan and Satan has a plan. The beauty of Satan's plan is it's, it's, uh, it's actually pretty good, that he will give you some of what you need, but always at the wrong time and always in the wrong way. You get it faster. God's plan is always better, though. He gives you everything that you need, but only at the right time and only in the right way. And we often get seduced into not waiting for God's plan. And we take the quick and easy plan. As you contemplate Jesus, the rock, turn your life over to him. His plans are always better than our plans. No, you don't know exactly how it's going to unfold step by step. That's part of the beauty of the whole deal. That's why there's risk involved. But in the end, you get God, you get grace, you get a shelter in the time of storm. It says at the end of that section of the Sermon on the Mount that the rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew against the house. But the house built on the rock stands. I think this picture that David is giving us in Psalm 62 illustrates part of what Jesus was talking about years later when he gave the Sermon on the Mount. So this is how I'd like to wrap this up today. Like the song that says the rock won't move, we are discovering things about the rock. We find rest at the rock. We find hope at the rock. We find safety at the rock. We find God's plans unfolding at the rock. Jesus is the rock in a weary land, a shelter in the time of storm. And he bids you and me to come and to find unshakable hope as we tie ourselves to the rock that never moves. Does that make sense to you? I hope it does. Let's pray. God, I saw a lot of nods around the room that this makes sense to us. So here are the folks, here are the folks who may be saying right now, Lord, I've been chasing my own plan. And there are days when my own plan seems pretty good, and there are days when my own plan just gets me in more trouble. I want to turn toward your plan. I'm coming to the rock, to Jesus. Lord, there are people here this morning who are saying, Lord, I just need rest. I need quietness of soul. I'm coming to you again. Will you supply that for me? There are people who are here who are tremendously discouraged and longing for hope. And we hear the person who's saying, Lord, that's what I need. 
Resupply hope in my life. I'm coming to you as the rock of my salvation. There are people here who need safety. Something's going on that has made either their home or their world a dangerous place. And Lord, provide shelter. Provide a way out. Lord, there may be somebody here this morning saying, I've been holding you at arm's distance, or I knew you when I was a child, and I've gone my own way. This morning, I'm, I come to you as the rock. I'm scared to do it. I'm scared because it might involve change. I'm scared because I only know the pathway that I've been directing. But put me on your pathway. I'll follow step by step. Give me the wisdom to know where you're directing me. Lead me to all of these things, to rest, to hope, to shelter, to a better plan. I will trust that Jesus is my savior. Jesus is my leader. Jesus is the rock that I can depend on. Here I come, doubts and all. And Lord, I ask that you will fill each person with exactly what they ask for this morning as they come to the rock. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Hey, thanks for being here today and all this, uh, this month. I've got two more parts of this series. We're starting out with eight weeks of hope. So I hope that uh, you're not hoped out. I know there are some people here still who feel like they got the hope kicked out of them. But we're starting off the year strong, and I hope we can finish this this series strong as well. Our ushers are already preparing, and thank you for uh, giving and supporting what we do here at North River. And we've got one final song that we're going to sing. <laughs>